0: Welcome to P.I.'s Declassified, an inside look at the world of private investigators. Your host is Francie Kaler, a noted private investigator. Francie and her guests take you behind the scenes and into the genuine, sometimes gritty business of investigation. You'll hear stories from the trenches with plenty of surprises. Here's your host, Francie Kaler.
1: Well, good morning and welcome. It's uh, nice to maybe take a little break away from the news, world news events and the, what's going on in the world with uh, wars and pandemic and everything and talk about something else. So, that's exactly what we're going to do this morning. I have, my guest today is Deborah Allen. Deborah Allen is a woman I've known for uh, a few years now and uh, uh, she is hailing to us from Hawaii, so it's early there. Uh, good morning, Deborah. Aloha
2: good morning.
1: Yes it's <laughs> oh. early. Aloha to you too. <laughs> so uh, Deborah, you are all over the place. I see you in <laughs> I see you in conferences everywhere you I think you also live in Arizona. you uh, pass through California frequently. <laughs> so what's going on with you? Well,
2: um, you know, in this crazy business of the PI world, sometimes we have to reshape our um, career path and go with other things that are now working. And so, um, and then life changes. So, I always love a challenge. So, here I am.
1: Well, I know that uh, for a while that you were offering cruises, teaching type cruises and that kind of, because of the pandemic pandemic kind of pretty much fell apart, and, and which is sad because I thought it was a great idea.
2: Yeah, it, it was a really great idea and it would have really worked, but who could predict the, you know, COVID and then also, you know, the economy and travel. So nobody right. could really predict that. And yeah. weather. And, and yeah.
1: weather. Yeah,
2: that, has, so, <laughs> that mm-hmm. does have an impact. Yeah, we our first one, we got hit with uh, a hurricane at the end of the, the first cruise. So, but we had a good time. We did, but it was yeah. like you know you can't predict that. Yeah, but that's okay. We pivot, right? That's yeah, what we, absolutely. You know, that's what we need to do in this business.
1: That's right. Be flexible and, and you know come up with new ideas. So, um, right, right, right now. Well, I know. Let's let's talk about your background. I know you're former law enforcement, Correct. and uh, and where were you uh, in law enforcement? Was that Riverside County in California?
2: Uh, Yeah, but prior to Riverside um, County, I uh, was a deputy sheriff in San Bernardino County and then went to Riverside County um, as a a lateral position as a senior investigator for the district attorney's office and then retired from there.
1: Okay. And then um, did you immediately get a private investigator's license when you retired?
2: I did. You know, I got injured at work. I had five surgeries They were not allowing me to come back to work as a full-fledged, you know, police officer or investigator, and um, so I got my PI license. They sent me to polygraph school, Baxter's, if you remember that, in San Diego. I do. And spent eight weeks down there, <laughs> and, uh, and got licensed as a polygraph examiner and got my PI license at the same time. I still wanted to work, but couldn't.
1: Yeah. So, um, since you mentioned polygraphs uh, a little bit, why don't you talk just briefly about the uh, accuracy
2: of polygraphs? Oh, gosh, that's a that's a touchy one. But you know, I <laughs> I really I pivoted from that too because you know here I went from working homicide cases and and high profile cases to uh, women and men wanting to test their their spouses, to see if they were cheating. And so Mm -hmm. it didn't polygraph in the civilian capacity, unless you're working for law enforcement, really just didn't have it for me. I mean, I love the skills that i learned, and I always used polygraph when I was a a detective and an investigator. Um, But as an examiner, I didn't find it satisfying. I kind of pivoted out of that, too. But the skills that they taught me and the licensing I obtained from that, you know, have always stayed with me. But the accuracy, you know, it depends on the examiner. Honestly, and it's just a, it's a uh, a way of getting the person to um, get to the truth. Mhm. Mhm. You your threat. body. Well, you, you know, you, yeah, your words can lie, but your body mm-hmm. can't. So right. that's why we test. You know, all the different levels um, of reaction from a person, from respiration to heart rate to, um, you know, you're swallowing. Uh, you know. Sweating, perspiration. You know, your words can say, you know, I didn't do this, but you know, your body can't lie. So you're going to have a reaction, or, or should have a reaction. So and why that's it, how it works? Yeah, why is it wasn't satisfying to you? Well, because you know, again, it was uh, people wanting um, investigations that were not on the level of coming from homicide, you know, coming from uh, something as intense and as important to me. And I'm getting, you know, I was in Newport Beach, so I was getting clients that wanted to know if their spouses were cheating, you know. So, it just didn't, I just didn't, I did it for a while, and I just didn't get the satisfaction, the personal satisfaction from it. So, it was profitable, all very profitable. Hmm. Okay. but um, interesting. But there was more to it that I just didn't feel was, you know, satisfying me. It's not always about
1: the money, right? Yeah, my husband was a polygraph examiner as well, so it's it's an interesting uh, oh, well, uh, area. Well, then you know all this. <laughs> well, but our, yeah. our listeners don't. <laughs> our listeners don't know. Yeah. Did, uh, did, and um, yeah, did he yeah, go to Baxter? No, he, I can't Baxter. remember. It was the oh. other one. <laughs> the other one, which oh. isn't in business That's any longer it. either. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So. Uh, Okay, so now what are you doing? Now what are you interested in?
2: Well, you know, for the past, you know, 20 years of, of being a PI, um, I, I had a personal relationship with uh, the world of adoption and adoption reunions based on my, my own father being adopted. And as soon as I became a police officer, and, you know, he's like, well, you could solve my adoption. Well, you know, back in 82, the, you know, the resources and um, you know the internet wasn't there and DNA uh, testing wasn't as the capacity it is now and it wasn't as easy as it is now to work those kind of cases but that was my first adoption search case with my own father's, and then uh, people I worked in law enforcement with they were like well you know do you think you could find my first father I'm adopted and people would always just come to me in so many different ways Um, and then just you know the reputation of, you know, oh, go to Deborah if you've got, you know, an adoption search. So um, that's my passion is doing those kind of cases. Um, And then I I can keep on going, but I've been doing that since early 70s, honestly, because that's when my dad was, you know, I first learned that my dad was um, adopted and had a child that um, uh, was separated from him through a divorce. So I was always looking for her. It was difficult to do back then.
1: Oh, Deb, go back to your dad's uh, adoption issue. Tell us about yeah. what you did. I mean, this is a different time now, of course, but tell us what you had to do to, to
2: get that information and how it resolved. Yeah. Well, my father was, um, was rehomed to three different families through adoption, right? And so eventually he then knew who his mother was through a rumor kind of and then later had a relationship with her but she always lied to him about who his father was and just you know recently the hundred year mark of his birth um, you know obviously he's been gone for a long time now um, came about and so the adoption uh, paperwork and the actual birth certificate were released and she knew exactly who the birth father was and um, but she kept that from him so my dad's uh, lifelong struggle of, you know, never really knowing who he was and that whole identity issue really rang, you know, true to me to getting to the truth of the matter and helping people when they have issues with, you know, not finding the truth and how to find the truth. It wasn't easy back then. You know, that was using soundex and um, and index cards and uh, microfilm through the Mormon church and doing it the old-fashioned way. Now, just about everything is online.
1: For sure. Now, what do you mean by Soundex?
2: Well, it was through library, you know, through um, finding resources that way and, um, you know, old old versions of um, documents, right? So it just was a difficult process back then. It was time-consuming and a lot of interviewing of people who may have known something, you know, that kind of stuff. Now it's just, you know, clicks on a button, really, and DNA has really changed the whole dynamic of adoption searches. I now, when I get a call uh, for an adoption search, I tell them, you know, let's save yourself some time here and money, you know, test with Ancestry DNA. that's the largest DNA company, and also 23andMe, um, the second largest DNA company, and if you don't get the results that you're looking for, or if you get results that you don't understand what that means, then I can help you. But for the most part, it's very uncommon that we um, have somebody test now on either side of the adoption that DNA can't solve for us. So that has changed the world of adoption searches.
1: For sure. You know, I was interested Mm -hmm. in your term uh, of rehomed. Uh, So Mm -hmm. your father was readopted three
2: times? Yes. Yes. How sad is that? Before he was 11. Yeah. So what it does, it it creates um, a life of early turmoil, you know, and so he was always, you know, on the run. And not on the run from police, but just always searching, you know, always desperately, not looking so much for his father, but just his identity. He had three different names before age 11.
1: My goodness. How
2: sad. So, mm -hmm. mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I've always kind of, you know, a strong place in my heart for uh, anybody who mentions adoptions. I I mean, they just happen to come at me. It's just so crazy. Even here in Hawaii, getting my nails done, I overheard someone saying they got their DNA results and they were looking for their birth father and they never, they can't figure out what it means. And I had them that afternoon, you know, so, um. and then that led to her telling the story to other people. And so here I am in a small town in, in Hawaii and I'm getting clients that way. So
1: Interesting. Interesting. And mm-hmm. do you know why mm-hmm. his mother didn't want him to know who his father was? What was the story behind that? You know,
2: he was, you no, know, yeah, they were both um, young. They were in their 20s, and they both unmarried, so there really was no reason for it. He ended up marrying a woman who uh, he never had children with, so my dad would have been his only child. So here's a crazy story. So with DNA, um, I was able to, prior to getting that 100-year mark, I was able to solve it with DNA because his second cousin, um, who was like in his 90s, took his DNA test. And so once I contacted that family, because they, they obviously had their father test, right, because he's in his 90s, and they knew uh, Uncle Charlie. And Uncle Charlie looked just like my father, only Uncle Charlie always wore a hat. So Uncle Charlie was actually a salesman for the Stetson Hat Company for like forty years and a travelling salesman. Yeah. And yeah. Yeah. So I that sent must have a been picture a picture of Uncle Charlie. Yeah. To my that kids. Must... And so here's a picture of my dad with a Stetson hat, but it's not my dad, it's his own real father. Oh my goodness. So my kids thought, Yeah, my kid says, Well, when did grandpa ever wear a Stetson hat? Well, you yeah. didn't. That's that's I found his father. Interesting. Yeah, that was a good, 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 ending. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Exciting. Exci- you know, those are exciting times. So, mm-hmm. so where do you start uh, when you're doing these, Deborah? When, when, I'm doing when somebody,
2: an adoption yeah, search? Or, yeah, an adoption well, search. When somebody yeah, contacts becomes, you. Hmm. Well, if it's an Arizona adoption, I'm actually still on the um, the court um, roster as a confidential intermediary. Where the Arizona court allows me to open up sealed adoption records and actually have the actual document, you know, so there's no guessing, right? And so, if it's an Arizona case, then it's pretty straightforward in finding them and then contacting the um, the person on the other side and. With Arizona, you have to have mutual contact and so mutual agreed contact. So if the person that I'm reaching out to, say the birth mother, um, if I reach out to her and I say, well, your child would like to have contact with you, um, of course, always through a letter. I never do phone calls. People don't like phone calls out of the blue. Um, and so if they're, it's agreed upon, there's a notarized document that's signed between the two, and then I'd make a, like a scheduled dance. You know, like, are you good to stay in time? Are you good to stay in time? And then both sides agree, and then I put them um, together that way. So it's not a surprise. They're um, they're set up and it's scheduled. Um, so I find that that's the best way. I actually do any type of other searches um, all across the world the same way because it requires, I believe, to have a mutual contact. It's not about outing the other person or giving information about the person to another person, because essentially isn't that what the California law is about? About stalking and providing information of another person to a person, correct? Without their correct. consent. So I always make sure that it's a mutual consent and it's notarized. It's, it's actually the way it works. That's why I probably have more agreed upon adoption searches with a happy ending than most people, because I, I do apply that principle to all searches. And I always always have, honestly. Because I've just always felt that, you know, nobody wants a phone call like I said out of the blue. I want it scheduled. There's no surprises. It's, you know, you want to make sure the person's in private or if they want other people around it, you know, it's up to them, right?
1: So what kind of reactions have you received from people when you reach out to them?
2: Oh. Well, everything from a ninety-seven-year-old mom saying, "I lived this long waiting for this day," from me to you know someone to contact her about her daughter, um, which was beautiful. It was just an awesome, awesome one. Yeah, up to uh, I have no idea what you're talking about. Slam the door, you know that kind of thing. Um, to well, because, like I said, she's probably got other secrets, and sure enough, she had two other children she placed for adoption after that child. So, um, that we didn't know about because it wasn't, you know, a Cal, it wasn't an Arizona case. So, um, it was back East, but that ended up working out because we used other family members to soften her because the adoption, uh, the adoptee really wanted that contact. So it it was difficult on that one. She, but she was a, I don't know, she was in her nineties or two, but she just didn't want any part of it. And she lived her life as a, um, um, a widow later in life, but never any children. And this was all from a man that she had an affair with, same man, for all three children, um, you know, prior to her meeting her husband. So big secret, right? But yeah. it worked out in the end. She's, she's okay with it now. Yeah. Lots of family secrets. Lots
1: of, okay. lots of family secrets around. Uh, we're mm-hmm. finding out through yeah. uh, Ancestry and 23 me. Yeah.
2: So, yeah. <laughs> um, well, I've even found two brothers and a sister I didn't know about. Well, sister I knew about, I just never knew how to find her because of records through Ancestry. So here I do a lot of the, I'm referred a lot from Ancestry uh, on cases when I get stuck, especially if they need a private investigator, if the person's still alive that they're trying to contact, so they'll contact me to, to work the case. And here I do work for them, and I got a big surprise of two brothers and a, you know, two half-brothers and a sister, all from my father's side. Wow. Well, and... But we could talk a whole hour about that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, give some more details.
0: Of what oh, you well, with
2: they, I mean, it's just great. So, I never knew my father in his journeys so ever made it to Georgia. We never talked about Georgia. Um, never talked about Utah. In 1930, he actually married a girl uh, in 1930, and um, unbeknownst to him, she was pregnant when her family made her get annulled. She was um, LDS or Mormon, and my father was not, um, and so that was just going to be a no-win for that family, and so my dad left, went back home to Indiana, and this woman had a baby, and another man assumed the role of father, and so when that man died... Um, then his children tested on Ancestry, and I got it, my hit, but, you know, on there, and I know exactly what that was, the Morgan count, um, that that would be a potential half-nephew, and then contacting the family and then seeing his picture, you know, and then I've actually met that family, too. They're very, very nice. Uh, up to about three years after that, uh, it happened again. I got another paternal uh, half-niece match, but only this person lived in Georgia and when I googled her and I um, and I looked her up on Facebook I thought I was looking at a picture of myself we look so much alike that people actually think we're sisters more that I look more uh, more familiar or more similar to her than uh, you know full siblings that I had so and she's a doll we talk all the time and um, she actually does work um, volunteer work as a adoption uh, reunion expert now, too. Um, Really? So, with my company. Oh, that's interesting.
1: Very Mm -hmm. interesting. Uh, And then,
2: recently, when when I hear about the recent find, this actually happened uh, two weeks ago. Absolutely. All right. So, in the 70s, my dad had talked about this one child that he had that the mother left. I don't remember if I told you about that earlier, but the mother left when when she was pregnant and he never knew what happened to that child. So I've always, he didn't know a whole lot about her. I don't know why. He wasn't really open to telling us about it, but it came out. So anyway, all I had was a first name of the mother and a first name of the child. And um, this is why indexing and volunteering for like FamilySearch.org is so important if you have if your listeners have spare time and are interested in genealogy, you can go on that website and actually help index records that are um, that are needing to be um, digitized, you know, and, and, and put the information from the microfilm onto the system. Um, so someone had done that in this little tiny town in Georgia, and um, last August, um, a hit came up, because I have an automatic search set up on there, of my father and a marriage certificate. And he never mentioned Georgia when he talked about, you know, this daughter and this marriage, which would have been a big help, right? But it was this little tiny town in a little tiny county. And here's this marriage, and there's the woman's first name. is the same. And then I tracked her, and then she had a daughter a couple months later in uh, another state. So I contacted um, I researched her. I found out that she had just passed away earlier that year. And that happens a lot. That's a whole other topic. But um, it's almost like they get up into heaven and it's like, find me, you know. It's okay. Mm-hmm. Everybody can find me now. Mm-hmm. But uh, So anyway, so she she had passed away and I reached out to her daughter and um, I sent them a DNA kit and it took them a little bit to, to send it off, but when they did, the results came back two weeks ago and she was my sister. So oh, wow. I found the elusive, you know, daughter and the former wife who never told her, she had told her daughter that the father had died you know, prior to her birth. And then it was just a taboo topic and it never came up. So, mm. yeah.
1: So um, interesting. So interesting. interesting.
2: So the one-to-one the one in Georgia, um, the, the brother, you know, the niece that works for me, the half-niece, her father and um, that sister were only a couple months apart. So either well, obviously, my dad was fooling around while he was married with this other woman and got that one pregnant, too. So we always say that it's a good thing my father never had a cell phone or technology or dating apps because he already had <laughs> enough charisma and able to find enough women to make all these children. So I have a total of, like, nine um, half-sisters and brothers and full siblings, so a total of nine of us. Yeah. My goodness. So so, so mm-hmm. he
1: knows no- he knew sure. none of this. No, no,
2: he didn't know. Yeah, yeah, he passed in 1995. Yeah, yeah. He loved it, though. I'm sure he's up there in heaven saying, okay, I've got them all here now. Deborah needs to know so she can rest. And then I always say, okay, I found that last one. Maybe I should just hang up my, you know, shingle, and and I'm done now. But then it's like other people contact me. I've been waiting. Uh, I'm ready now to search. I contacted you a couple years ago and I'm ready now, you know, so how do you say no to those people, you know, because they've been waiting, or, you
1: know, waiting so for the right do,
2: timing. you do think he
1: would would be pleased if he were here?
2: Oh, I know he would be, yeah. Yeah? Yeah, I do. Okay. Because mm-hmm. he, so, he was a great father, and, and, and good to us, and, um, you know, just would always bring home a stranger. I mean, like he would go to the donut shop in the 60s and 70s and bring home strangers, you know, because if someone needed shoes or someone needed clothes or someone needed a ride or a job, my dad was that person that always helped people. And that's, hmm. you know, obviously from his childhood, you know.
1: That's uh, it's an amazing story. I mean, his his... Travels Mm -hmm. are really amazing. So I'm curious, um, you mentioned you only had first names. Tell me how you do that when you only have a first name when you're trying to locate somebody.
2: Mm -hmm. It was difficult because that was during, um, so like on my father's, he was using a different name at the time too. A similar first name and middle name because that was always his first name, but the last name always changed based on who his father was at that time, right? So um, I just do searches on, you know, the names I've known him to use and then put them in a, like a um, saved search. So then if it pops up, if there's a new search or new record found, then it pops up. Other other times it's difficult um, if it's, you know, all they have is the first name of their mother and... Um, they, you know, know their date of birth. Like if it was a, a child looking for their birth family, makes it even more difficult, right? But let's go back and track it. So if it's California, some of that stuff is on um, Ancestry.com. Ohio has their records on Ancestry.com. A lot of states um, have their birth records now online where you can go back and look at that. And some of the states now, that the people are actually able to contact the state and um, get their um, adoption records and their original birth certificate. Arizona still, is, you're not allowed to unless you were born before 1962. So, the people from 1962 forward are still needing, you know, the services of a confidential intermediary. Intermediary, It's early here. Um, so, uh, and then other states, you know, it's, it's a little bit easier and a little bit tougher. Um, some states still have a confidential intermediary program as well. So every state's different. You just have to be flexible and know, you know, from history of working in those cases which case and which state would require, you know, what what uh, search needs. So I'm not A lot of con- times it's I've... helping the, the client find the right. find the location, and find the, the family information to get them to fill out the form.
1: Yeah, I'm not um, familiar with the confidential intermediary. We don't—I don't believe we have that in California. Um, do you know?
2: Actually, they do, but there's a last time I heard it was one social worker who worked part time. But it's still okay. it's the same thing where they can search for your records. Mm-hmm. Mm. And some counties, it's, it's just not even on in California. But Alameda County is different. Um, and, um, some of the other Northern California counties are a little bit more lax in their information. They can always, if they, if they know where they were adopted through, um, because they were told that or they saw records from their uh, adopting parents, they can always contact that county directly and see where they get. And then there's a form that they can go on to from California State where they can apply to try and get the information. Most of the okay. time they'll be told to hire, a you know, someone to help them. Sometimes they will help them. Sometimes well-meaning people working in those positions will, um, you know, have a little bit of a loose lip and slip them information that helps them on their search, if yeah, you know what I mean. For sure. Yeah. That happens actually more than we think. Interesting. <laughs> Quite often, actually.
1: Mm-hmm. Okay, Deb, we're going to take yeah. a, a short break to let our uh, sponsors have a, a yeah. word for a minute. We'll be right back.
0: The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com PI Magazine is the most respected magazine of the professional investigator. We feature stories and articles on current trends and issues, equipment reviews, tips, and practical advice. Don't miss the new and exciting year in PI Magazine. Subscribe today at PIMagazine.com on P.I.'s Declassified. Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com You're listening to P.I.'s Declassified with Francie Kaler. You can call into the program. We'll take questions and comments at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You can also email your question to Francie. Send it to francie at pisdeclassified.com. Now, here's Francie Kaler.
1: My guest today is Deborah Allen. Deborah is uh, a private investigator in Arizona, Hawaii, and uh Periodically, she passes through California, where I live. Uh, Deborah, so so this. Uh, confidential- I am licensed in California as well. <laughs> Are you licensed in California? Okay. Uh, I have been since two
2: thousand and four.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so um, when you're talking about this confidential intermediary, uh, what kind of hoops does somebody have to g- jump through to g- get that designation?
2: Well, it's in, in Arizona. It's an application through the state. There's a, a three day course you have to take, and then they do a thorough background and FBI check. Um, I don't know that they're going to be having that um, that test in that opening. Um, they used to take have the test every two years, um, but there's such a limited need now for our services, like I explained about the ancestry test and DNA. Technology and also the open records. so the need for you know the 20 or so of us in the state of Arizona has you know decreased over the years because of you know the records and with DNA and people able to figure it out themselves with you know online searching and stuff mm-hmm. so i have mean, an interesting case though that one of those one of those Arizona cases led to if you want to talk absolutely about that. let's talk about it Oh. Okay, well, it's actually going to be featured on Nancy Grace um Bloodline Detectives later this year. We've just filmed part of it. Um so in 2017 I was contacted by another confidential intermediary in Arizona and when she found out that the um birth mother that they were looking for for her for her client had passed away um in the form of, you know, homicide and that it was an unsolved unsolved homicide from 1976 in Orange County, California. So knowing my background as a homicide detective, she goes, I think that Deborah would be a better fit for you to take it further. And it actually worked out. And so the client contacted me, and I said, well, let's see what we can do. So I called up Orange County Sheriff's Department Cold Case Unit, and I said, I don't know that you're aware of this or not, but your victim in 1976, had a daughter um, that was uh, surrendered uh, when, the, you know, the victim was 16 and the victim was 29 when she passed in 1976. So um, they didn't know that. And the detective um, said, you know, well, I would like to, you know, have a conversation with the daughter. And I said, well, we'd also like to have a conversation with you to see what's going on with the case. So long story short, um, they had not been working the case. They hadn't looked at it because technology, the last time they looked at the DNA in the case file, um, had proven no results. So with the pressure, um, I believe, from us and writing the incoming district attorney, the case actually got reopened. And they re-examined the DNA on the clothing and were able to make a positive match. And that person um, was in Louisiana living his best life, a retired person recently, retired and uh, on a dating website, we found. And mm. so he was uh, contacted and he also provided DNA. Um, they did one sur- surreptitiously obtained his DNA and from... Um, We could talk about that, too, but I don't know exactly how they did it because they haven't released that part, but they got found DNA from him. Usually it's on a paper cup or a cigarette
1: or -hmm. or a napkin,
2: and then they were able to obtain DNA from him, and it was a positive match to the suspect who um, had been on the body of um, the victim. And so... um, that they were he was arrested and brought back to California, he was awaiting trial, and he was Orange County's first in custody death from COVID in 2020. Hmm. So, um, yeah, so not the ending we hoped for because we really wanted to know more about it, but they were able to learn more about his behavior and what happened um, that was similar with his previous relationships and and similar to what happened to the victim, all that will be released in the show. Um, And so, um, you know, that's a successful end. I don't believe if we would have, you know, if I wouldn't have contacted them and the victim and I putting pressure on them, they wouldn't have actually looked as in, you know, right away into that case. They may have eventually redone the DNA, but here's what happens. When you have a cold case, and there's no family or an advocate helping that family, um, that case goes cold. And it, they hadn't solved it since nineteen seventy six. Mm-hmm. I always feel like there should be a law that says, you know, you get five years to work a case max. And after that, let the families try and get a private investigator to do additional research and work with, you know, the homicide team. especially if they'll work with investigator.
1: If they'll work with you.
2: Yeah, Yeah. that's the trick, right? So, Mm -hmm. but if they've had all you know forty something years and they haven't done anything, it's just I mean, one public safety—that person's still out there, right? And Mm -hmm. two, you know, the family—where does that leave them? So, what had happened with this victim in in Orange County? Her name was Leslie Penrod Harris, and there's a Facebook page I created for her, and there's a lot of media buzz that people will Google her. Um, So, if they're interested. And so what happens with that is that the case goes so cold that no one's looking and her husband had passed. This is a sad part of it too. Um, Really sad. He had passed because he um, always was um, a suspect in the case. Mm -hmm. Um, And he'd always been accused of, you know, doing this to her, right? She was found at El Toro Marine Corps base if people, viewers are familiar. And she was, um, she was, at last, scene at a restaurant with her husband, having dinner, they got into an argument, and she walked outside the restaurant, saying she would just get a ride back to their hotel they were staying at. And um, they were actually had just moved back from Hawaii, of all well, things, um, and they were looking for a place back in Orange County. And he was an executive for a company, and you know he was an educated man, and here he went into this. Person who lost his wife that night that they found later that night, but identified her a couple of days later um, through somebody else calling in, and you know there was a found body that matches the person that they're missing, right? But she's found 25 miles from the shopping center, um, and so the case went cold, and they had you know nothing to go on, and they looked at the husband. Even though the people in the restaurant said, you know, he never left and went outside, we were with him the entire time. He couldn't have done anything. So, um, so he went into what people have uh, described to me as being insane, unable to care for himself, and and lost his job and lost his uh, way of life and died young. And so, it you know, with this what happens with families? and it's, The mother had died as well, young um, not knowing what happened to her daughter, who killed her daughter. So and she the daughter, the victim was an only child. And so who's out there looking now for the killer? Who's pressuring the police department mm-hmm. to keep this case alive? There's only right. like a two little blurps in the newspaper about her back when it happened. And so no one's looking because of course it's that shiny light theory, you know, the shiny lights over here on a new case, so we all rush over there to work that case and I worked on the side, you know, you're out on a a team Is out on a case and sometimes we don't even get to go back to bed, right, or or close out the case and the next one starts. So, Mm -hmm. you know, that's busy counties, busy police departments, not enough help, and cases go cold and they didn't have any leads to go on. But when I first got the case, I said, I know that area, I grew up in that area, I said, okay, well, the two... The two common denominators are the shopping center and the Marine Corps base. Okay, so this person is either a Marine living off base or an employee at the base and has residency or traveled to that mall. There's so many other places back then, especially, between Orange County, um, South Coast Plaza, and El Toro Marine Corps base that he could have dropped her body. Why there? Why at the Marine Corps base on the outside, you know, grounds of, mm-hmm. you know, before you enter the base? Well, there's a common denominator there. But they never looked at, had they, they looked at he, the suspect, um, Eddie Lee Anderson, he actually lived within a five mile radius of the shopping mall and was a Marine active duty on that base. So had they looked at anybody that lived off campus, you know, or off housing, right? Um, and did some type of search, and they may have, but no one ever really followed up on that. It was so obvious once we know who he was, you know, the known who he is, that they could have been able to, you know, should have been able to figure that out. Who wasn't on duty that night, right?
1: Who Right, so they never had that person in their sights at the time. No, no. And, no. and her poor husband... Never. Died with this hanging over his head. How sad. Yes,
2: yes. I've talked. Yes, it's very sad. I talked to his family, and, you know, they were still, didn't want to, you know, really help me, didn't want to really even know the victim's daughter. You know, they didn't know that he, and I don't think her husband knew that she had had a daughter that she had given up for adoption. Here's a good positive part about the whole case, besides the suspect being caught, is that the records in Arizona also had the first father's name and On them, And so um, I contacted him, and he was so excited to know what happened to his daughter. He was very Mm. sad to know about what happened to, you know, his former girlfriend from high school. They were high school sweethearts, and the family said, oh, Mm. this isn't going to happen, and this baby's going to go up for adoption. Um, But he carried a picture of his former girlfriend in his wallet for decades So you know, in a fight someone destroyed it. Um, and that's a whole nother story, (laughs) but you know, he didn't have any closure either, but he didn't know what happened to Leslie. He didn't know to look in newspapers and he lived in a different state, you know, and he didn't know how to look for his daughter when he could have contacted the Arizona court, hired a, a CI or a confidential intermediary and, and we could have, you know, found his daughter years ago. But the daughter wasn't ready either. Some, sometimes this happens where, you know, the birth uh, parents are usually younger and the um, adopting parents are older. So they wait mm-hmm. till their adopted parents are, have passed, or you know, really have given them permission to search before they actually do look. And that that was the case here, where she waited till she was the victim was the victim's daughter was almost fifty um, before she decided to look. Right. And well, FBI,
1: but and and years yeah. ago, all the adoptions were confidential, and so often they changed their birth certificates, their certainly their names, and and nobody ever knew until something happens that they something triggers
2: um, a search. Mm-hmm. Right, a common search I get now too is, and I just had two of these. In fact, I I keep looking at the phone to make sure I was talking to the right client because I had two very similar cases where two men in their 40s took a DNA test on the urging of their wives just for fun and find out about a little bit more about your family history, right? And mm-hmm. both of them found out that their father was not their birth father. Completely separate cases, completely separate people, right? No relation to each other. But their, their case was so similar, and that does happen. It's not that the... This even happens with adoptions and male clients. Normally, it's the urging of their spouse that wants them or their children to start searching. Men don't usually search until they have that person pushing them or they're older in age. Um, mm-hmm. they, they just aren't interested or they just don't do it. Women, are, um, you know, when they're 18 or 19, they're, they're already starting to look in most cases. Right. Um, but th- both of those... I was able to find out who their true birth father was because what happened, so on those two cases, they, you know, got their DNA results, and oops, that's not even close to who their father says it is and who's this other person, right? So did put on my intermediary hat and, and um, you know, put the families together, and um, one was really difficult. I have, I have great people working with me too, and uh, one was really difficult because it was an Amish family, and uh, the Amish usually marry first cousins, and so the mixture of the DNA there, and then they have a lot of children, right? That was a tough one. But we got him. And so, wow. unfortunately, he had passed away, but he had like 10 other kids. So, yeah. But that happens um, too, where, you know, you take that DNA test and you think you're just going through life, and oops, that wasn't my father, you know? So Right. Back, back to the one,
1: Deb. Head noise. Back to the one, Deb. You were talking about... Where the uh, guy was identified. What state was he located in?
2: The one that was brought back?
1: I'm sorry, Louisiana?
2: Yes.
1: And so do you know any details about. All right. Do you know any details about his arrest or his extradition or anything like that?
2: No. um, They actually interviewed the law enforcement on that for our show. And they're keeping that for the show, and then it'll be okay. released from that information. Yeah. So. Okay, yeah, a little so teaser. little teaser for the is, show. <laughs>
1: yeah.
2: Yeah. So biggest biggest lesson there is, you have to just be an advocate for the victims. You know, you have to have someone, and when there's no one, um, it just gets overlooked. So let's
1: talk a little bit about the DNA and uh, when it was first. Uh, Identified it for use for criminal cases. That was about what, 99, 2000, maybe a little later. Yes. Mhm. So, so I'm kind yeah. of curious why police departments with cold cases don't periodically run DNA. Do you know the answer
2: to that? Well, law enforcement can't get into um, ancestry or 23andMe or any of the other private sites, law enforcement only has access to, um, to CODIS, and so there has to be a known person that already has their sample in there, right? Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. So
2: what they can do is that depending on the, the DNA that they have, they can run it um, through a process and extract DNA and now figure out the lineage of the person. So if it was a male defendant or just, you know, so they could look and see, okay, well, he's... Um, from Scandinavia, and he's of this origin, you know, and um, he is likely to have this comparison. So depending on how much DNA, you know, it's kind of technical, but they, depending on how much DNA material they have and the quality, are they able to actually take it down to um, a level that they can upload into a company called GEDmatch, G E D M A T C H dot com, and that is one that where people who have their results on Ancestry or 23andMe, uh, and others can upload it to a third party like GedMatch, and law enforcement can actually use that information because they're making that public, and then see who the closest descendants are when they upload their um, DNA that they've extracted up into that same database. And so usually, like with the Golden State Killer, I think it was, you know, three generations away. Um, I didn't work that case, but I, I know who did. But three generations away from the person that was the killer, Joseph D'Angelo, was a person in his relative tree that had tested and uploaded to GEDmatch.
1: Yeah, I was just going to ask you about the-
2: police. Mm -hmm. I was just going to
1: ask you about the Golden State Killer and and if that applied to that Mm -hmm. case because that's certainly been a case that's received a lot of press just because Mm -hmm. of the connection with the DNA and Ancestry. Um, Because all all we heard about in the press was that it came from Ancestry. So, I didn't know about this Mm -hmm. thing that you're calling Match. So, Mm -hmm. who who managed?
2: Anybody that has...
1: I was going to ask you, who manages GEDmatch?
2: Um, it's a private-owned company. Um, a private-owned person had created it. Well, you know, back when we were all doing um, adoption searches and missing person searches, we all were using these ancestry sites, right? And this was a person that thought, okay, well, if we can take that information and, and from a private company, and if the person allows us, uh, they can up loaded into GEDmatch, and then everybody can see it if they go into GEDmatch, right? Um, And then they can find their relatives that way. Essentially, if you are an adoptee and you tested at Ancestry, and your birth family that was looking for you tested on, say, 23andMe, and you both upload to this one common location, no matter where you tested from, you'll be able to find each other, rather than testing each of those companies individually to find people, but this is a repository for them to say, okay, we're looking
0: at this person's data, workers,
2: and this person's a close relative, and here's how their family tree works. So we're all hoping when we used this information for adoption searches, that essentially someday, eventually, it would be used for um, criminal matters. That was the hope, right? But now we're now we're there. I mean, we've got people now being trained um, in FBI and other police departments on how to do exactly what we're doing. But it all stems back from truly from adoption searches. So what is the process to get it uploaded to GEDmatch? Well, it depends on the markers. The the laboratory does that process. I try not to get involved in that part. It's like a little too much scientific head noise for me. Um, I keep it simple on my part. Once it's uploaded, then I can help agencies figure out how this person is related to the person's known DNA that we're uploading and to see their closest matches, and then we work a reverse tree. We go back in time and, and work it backwards. So, if they're matching um, on the third generation, then we build a tree and then bring it to forward to see who the person was in nowadays times and where their location would be, and then they have to still take a, a known DNA sample, would still... Once we give the suggestion to law the enforcement, they would still have to take that um, that information and go as a possible hint and go get a fallen DNA from that person or a found DNA, like a uh, napkin or a cigarette or something that they've disposed of, and see if it matches. And if it does, then they have to still get a search warrant and get the um, the DNA off the person. So okay, so a, a hint, a clue that we give. If somebody
1: wanted to pursue. Uh, something like this. Oh,
2: you broke up after you said pursue.
1: Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, If somebody wanted to pursue getting something uploaded into GEDmatch, uh, where would they go Mm -hmm. to get the information? How would they find out how to Mm -hmm. do it?
2: So so if it's a a private person that has has, has tested at Ancestry FTDNA, 23andMe, any of those sites, MyHeritage, they can take the information, set up an account on GEDmatch.com. It's free. And then it walks you through how to download your DNA from the company that you actually tested at and upload it into their site. And then they'll show you, it's pretty interesting to do, how many other people are on there that have also gone through the same process and how you match with those people. Mm. And then it has you um, you put your name and your um, email address, and how or you know how you want that person to contact you if they if they had any further information. And you can also upload a family tree in there, so it actually really helps when we get one of those cases where the person has uploaded a tree as well. So we don't have to go through all that other guessing or or contact with the person. Sometimes we don't like to contact that other party because we don't want them to tip off. You know, depending on how close they are in relationship to the to the matched defendant DNA, we don't want them to tip off that person, so we try not to contact them at all um, to let them know that we're using their DNA information that they put <laughs> in um, to help us you know, solve a crime. Yeah, that, that's but you know, kind when of a you, <laughs> when you upload. When you upload to to GEDmatch, there's actually an authorization there that you say it's okay for police to use the information on uploading, not your actual physical DNA, just the information, the numbers, you know, the numbers and, and letters, right, of your actual DNA profile. They can use that information and the information you provide how to be contacted or your family tree for law enforcement to use. You can actually upload to GEDmatch and opt out of that. But I would hope that everybody would opt in because even if it's a second or third cousin or a first cousin and they're a murderer or a serial rapist, I'd want them caught. I don't, you know, Yeah, I, for most sure. people, I think, feel that way, too. Yeah.
1: Well, that's fascinating information, Debbie. Uh, I have never heard this before. I appreciate you sharing it. Okay. We're at the end of our hour, but uh, this has been very oh. instructive. I appreciate uh, you being on the show and
2: talking about this. Uh, my pleasure.
1: Anytime. We can talk all day. All right. Well, you certainly can. <laughs> There's a lot to talk about. <laughs> but uh, good luck yes. on your adoption searches, and uh, I wish you well, and uh, feel free to uh, give me more, more information as you get it. If you want Do you want to let people know how to reach you in case they have an adoption issue? Yeah,
2: absolutely. So if it's in Arizona, it's... Um, Deborah at Allen I-N-V Allen Investigations and um, in Hawaii it's Deborah at 808 Investigations
1: Very good thank you so much and we have to close the show for uh, the rest thank of you, you it's uh, PIS that's, sure. that's okay uh, thank you for the rest of you it's PIS Declassified I'm Francie thank Kaler you. thanks for listening